0: go ahead and have us open God's word to chapter, uh, Mark. We're in the 13th chapter. This is part two of this section. It, it's going to be a three-parter. Just, it just just happens that way sometimes. So we'll get through part of the material this morning. We'll finish up next Sunday. We started this message two weeks ago. On Memorial Day, if you recall, Jesus has finished teaching in the temple. He cleansed the temple, cleared it out, taught for a number of days. Must have been a beautiful thing. Talk about great preaching. Correcting the errors, the theological errors of the religious leaders, the very religious leaders God had called to teach. Israel about God and the way of salvation, and they corrupted the truth and twisted it for their own financial gain and their own glory. Jesus came and cleansed the temple of all the money changers and held court, so to speak. And the religious leaders came in three waves and tried to trap Jesus into making a mistake, and they couldn't do it. Obviously, he's God. He's perfect. And at the end of the, the, the time of questioning, he taught for a while. And then we're going to see that he finally, it was time to leave the temple. And it just uh, a day later, he would be um, captured or arrested in the middle of the night, tried by a kangaroo court, and crucified. Let's read a little bit of what he said. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This must have been absolutely shocking to the people he was talking to. It took something like 43 years for Herod and his architects and engineers to build this temple. The stones, massive stones, expertly hewn from rock to fit so tightly together. In fact, Herod wanted to expand the temple to expand his own glory and name, and he had the temple mount expanded through a series of underground chambers, and they just basically built more mountain. Isn't that incredible? Um, The things that man can do, you know, like the Tower of Babel. (laughs) The things man thinks he can do to bring glory to himself. And through all that human effort, all that construction, all the time, all the money, all the labor, Jesus says God's not impressed. In fact, the whole thing's coming down. The buildings coming down to the last stone. The process of doing it is even unthinkable. To dismantle an entire building. It's it's not like they had wrecking balls or dynamite. This was going to have to be a massive amount of human labor to deconstruct the temple. In fact, I don't think the people who heard Jesus say that really believed him. Like, maybe it was one of those cryptic statements that had some kind of other meaning. And certainly, there was an alternate meaning here. In essence, he was saying, this temple represents apostate religion. The whole system is going down. The whole religious system is going down. So they leave through... The Eastern Gate, which was called the Beautiful Gate then, still exists today. Somebody from First Service was telling me it's closed. It's closed, and nobody's allowed in or out, and they just call it the Eastern Gate. It's not so beautiful anymore. It's near a cemetery. They left through the east, down through the Kindred Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives where you can see the entire Temple Mount. Very popular tourist spot if you go to Israel. And so they're sitting on the side of the mountain. They're on their way back to Bethany where they're staying the night. They stop on the Mount of Olives and there's four of them with Jesus. It says in verse 3, "...as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled?" The question that should be on your mind is, what things? What things were they talking about? Were they talking about the temple being dismantled, or did they talk about more from the time they left the temple till when they got to the Mount of Olives? What things were they talking about? It's one of those times in the, in the, the Bible where you wish you had more conversation recorded. If Mark thought we needed more conversation, he would have included it. Of course, Mark wasn't there, but who did Mark get his information from? Anyone know? Uh, Peter. Peter. I was just reminded of that last night. My family was reading the Sunday school lesson for this morning, which is from the book of Acts, where Peter gets released from prison. Miraculously, the angel helps him escape from prison, and he goes back to the house where John Mark was staying. John Mark is Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so Peter was staying with John Mark. John Mark was a contemporary of Peter. Peter obviously shared with him everything Jesus had taught him. So if Mark thought it was important... And by extension, if Peter thought it was important that we know the other things Jesus was talking about here, those things would be recorded. So it needs to be either obvious to us or we need to be able to find it somewhere else. And we can find the somewhere else if we go to Matthew's gospel. Whenever you're reading one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and we call them synoptic because it's a summary or synopsis, of Jesus' life and teachings. John's Gospel does record some of those elements, but John wrote for a different purpose. Whenever you're reading from the Synoptic Gospels, you should always look and see if one of the other two Synoptic Gospels has the same story. And if so, is there a little bit more to the story? We call this harmonizing the Gospels. It's It's a good thing. If you have a good study Bible, it should tell you where the other verses are. And so if we go to Matthew 23, we do get the same story. Actually, we get a lot more to the story. Matthew records just before this and just after Jesus finished his debate with the scribes and Pharisees, he launches into this Terrible rebuke of the religious leaders. Woe upon woe upon woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says terrible things to them that are true. Terrible in that God is judging these people in front of everyone at the temple. And it's recorded in Scripture for all eternity here. Out of all the people that Jesus was upset with when he came, it was less the tax collectors and sinners and more the religious leaders. It sobers me up. I guess I'm a religious leader, so I need to be careful that I teach what Jesus teaches and point you to the Scriptures. And so at the end of rebuking the scribes, Jesus says this, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Truly, I say to you, and I skipped verse 35, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they will not see Jesus until... The nation of Israel is ready to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Jesus came out from the temple, Matthew 24, 1, and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Same thing we see in Mark. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and from Mark's Gospel, we know which four disciples were there. They said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus must have been talking to them about these things. Which things? The tearing down of the temple. His coming, His second coming, and the end of the age. The end times. The final judgment. The final kingdom. When Jesus returns and restores the kingdom to Israel. Everything prophesied in the Old Testament about Israel. When will these things happen? It's not just the tearing down of the temple. Jesus has been giving them a a brief tour of eschatology. By the time they get to the Mount of Olives, they want to know, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? There's these people I mentioned two weeks ago called preterists. They believe that there isn't a literal kingdom, that Jesus' kingdom is the church. Okay? And Jesus reigns, vicariously from heaven, but the whole kingdom is here on earth, and that the church replaced Israel as the kingdom. And this teaching became popular in the 300s and really has survived in the church for a long time. Yet Jesus did not come back yet. If he did, we're waiting for the third coming of Christ. The Bible only talks about a second coming. Preterists say that everything Jesus said was going to happen in this text happened in A.D. 70 when the temple was torn down. Jerusalem was was, uh, overthrown, women and children slaughtered, Scaffolding built around the temple mount. The whole thing set on fire until it got so hot that the stones themselves crumbled and fell apart. They retrieved all the gold out of the temple and then stone by stone they removed the larger stones that were still good to use for other buildings and the rest they threw down into the valley. Just rubble. Just a sign and a picture for all passing by. Don't mess with Rome. This is what happens. Really, though, it was a sign from God, right? Don't mess with God. This is what happens to apostate religion. It's coming down. Yet we know there's going to be another temple built. We know this from the book of Ezekiel. In fact, the floor plan, the architectural design, it's all measured out is in the book of Ezekiel. In the first half of the book of Ezekiel, we see God's judgment on Israel and that God's glory would leave the temple. And there's an actual picture in Ezekiel of the glory of God. They called it the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God. Remember when Solomon built the first temple and they dedicated it? God's glory filled the temple. There was smoke and there was light. Remember when the Israelites built the tabernacle in the wilderness and God's Shekinah glory would come as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And to be in the presence of the glory of God was what kept Israel safe. Every year on the Day of Atonement, they would get a goat, put a goat out, and they would, the high priest would lay his hands on the goat and the curses of God for the people's sin would fall upon this goat, and they would throw the goat out of the, um, the tabernacle and out of the presence of God's glory, representing that God must turn His face from sin. And what a horrible thing for God to turn His face from you, right? Right? This is a picture of eternal damnation to be eternally separated from the presence of God. And so this scapegoat would be sent away from the presence of God. When Jesus, the real scapegoat, died on the cross, God turned his face, so to speak, from his Son, and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everything went dark, right? And the curtain was torn in two. All of that that All of that symbolism, imagery, it it all fits together. Interestingly, in Ezekiel's prophecy of God's glory leaving the temple, that did happen to Solomon's temple. But what about Herod's temple? Is Herod's temple Ezekiel's temple that he prophesied would be built in the future? We have to say no, because Herod's temple, first of all, is not the dimensions listed in Ezekiel's temple. Secondly, a pagan built the temple. Thirdly, it was filled with apostate religious leaders. The sacrifices that happened there, obviously, were not pleasing to God. He came as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and said such. These sacrifices in this temple are not pleasing to me. Obedience is pleasing to God, not sacrifices. Ezekiel's temple will be built. And what I find fascinating is that when Jesus declared that Jerusalem's house is going to be left to her desolate, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ in the temple left, just like in Ezekiel's prophecy, and left through the eastern gate, just like in Ezekiel, the presence of God left the temple by the east. Fascinating. God's glory did fill Herod's temple in the person of Jesus Christ, and he left. Herod's temple was destroyed. There's supposed to be another temple that's going to be built in the future. And a few years ago I was reading that there's plans in Jerusalem to rebuild a temple. I don't know how that's going to happen. There's like a whole bunch of these people called Muslims who may not want a temple rebuilt up there. And they all kind of share the property up there. In fact, there's a a mosque up there, right? The Dome of the Rock. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God's going to make it happen, which is really the point of the whole sermon here, is God knows the future absolutely, and what He says will come to pass will come to pass. And we don't have to symbolize and use figurative language to figure out prophecy. Just take it in the plain and normal sense in which it's presented. If that's the case, then why are there so many competing views about the end times? We'll look at that a little bit today. It's just that prophecy as a genre is a little bit different than other parts of the Bible. And so we'll talk about that a little later. I did want to ask you, though, why do we care so much about the future? Why is the future so fascinating to us as people? I mean, admit it, you think about the future. You want to know what's going to happen. You want to lay plans. You buy insurance. You invest in the stock market or, or whatever. You've probably got summer plans. You've got plans five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. You, you, you kind of think you know how things are going to turn out. You like to make predictions. You fill out your final four basketball chart. You uh, were fascinated with the future. And yet, we really have no idea what's going to happen. The best we can do is make an educated guess. That's why statistics and probability uh, as a a study have become so popular in our culture. Um, Pretty much everybody takes a statistics and probability class now in college, no matter what your major. We're living in a world that no longer believes in biblical prophecy. So the best we have is educated guesses. Moving here to Dehatchby, I realized just how terrible our weathermen are at predicting the weather up here. It's—I think I could do a better job. First time they said a major storm was coming, everyone said, "Oh, this is, you know, we're going to get hammered." We didn't get hammered. And then the next time they said a storm was going to pass right by us, we got hammered. <laughs> they said. You can plant your spring, summer garden after Mother's Day. Other people say, wait till Memorial Day. And other people say, June 1st. And I don't think it's really ever safe up here. (laughs) You better have a blanket ready to put over your garden. Why are we so fascinated with the future? Because... We are finite creatures trapped, so to speak, in time. God is infinite and he's outside of time. He knows past, present, and future simultaneously. Well, how does he do that? I don't know. He's God. He's he's a different creature, he's otherly. And the more we try to make him like us, the less he becomes God, and the more he just becomes kind of a superhero version of people. Ten, twenty years ago, that was about twenty years ago, twenty, thirty years ago, a group of theologians called Open Theists were teaching this heresy that God doesn't know the future. God doesn't know the future and how does he get these prophecies right down to the most particular detail? And they would say, well, God is so smart that he's like an awesome predictor. Like he's a grand chess champion like this world's never seen, that he can anticipate millions upon millions of moves in advance. So he sees where history is headed and he can make guesses and predictions with such um, reliability that we can say figuratively that God knows the future. How do you feel about that? Hogwash, Hogwash, thank you. That's the theological term I was looking for. (laughs) Hogwash. Who wants to worship that God? That God's not much different than we are. God knows the future. He is sovereign over the future. How does that work, though? And really, the reason you have open theists or another group called process theologians who are even worse, the process theologians say God is in process, meaning He created the heavens and earth, the universe, He kind of has a pretty good idea about the direction things are heading in, but He's waiting to see what happens and He's reacting to our choices and to just current events. And they like this God better because they say uh, there's a little element of danger involved. God takes risks. And somehow they think that's very glorifying to God. Really, you can tell that they like to consider themselves risk-takers and gamblers, and uh, they want a God like them. I don't want a God like me. In my flesh, I do. But at the end of the day, I need to confess and acknowledge that I need a God who's much different than me. And yet, how do I relate to such a God? How do I relate to such a God? Well, God's revealed Himself to us in Scripture and given us all the capacity to understand language. We take it for granted everybody learns to talk, right? Your two-year-old, three-year-old won't stop. Thank you. Always on cue. It's a beautiful thing. And we take it for granted, and yet it's a, a miracle how language and speech works. What has to happen for us to understand language and process it, all that information, and we make sense out of it. And God has told us about Himself, and yet He can't fully reveal His entire nature to finite beings. We can't fully comprehend God. The process theologians and open theists also don't seem to want to destroy man's free will. It's the most important thing to them, their free will. And if God knows exactly what's going to happen in the future, then somehow that swallows up our free will. Because what if I want to do something different than what God ordained? Can my free will thwart God's will? You know the answer is supposed to be no, but it does leave you scratching your head. So does God make me think what I want to think and make me decide what I want to decide? If that's the case, then isn't He responsible for my unbelief and for my sin? May it never be, as Paul would say. So what does the Bible teach? That God's sovereignty coexists with our free will, and they just go together left hand and right hand. As Charles Spurgeon once said when he was asked this question, how he attempts to separate man's free will and God's sovereignty, he says, I don't try to separate them. They're perfectly reconciled in the mind of God. I just don't have the mind of God completely. So yes, God knows the future completely, and yet your decisions and my decisions matter. Otherwise, we should just sit around and wait for God to act but that's not what he tells us to do so we're enthralled with the future then god already knows what's going to happen we we don't but he gives us a little bit of the picture and if you're a pessimist you're always worried about the future you know it's always like yeah things are bad now but i know they're going to get worse and if you're optimistic you're always like oh, i can't wait for tomorrow it's got to get better it's got to get better And so what does the Bible reveal? Does the future get worse or better? Yes, thank you, yes. It gets much worse and it gets much better. But it gets much worse before it gets much better. And our friends who are amillennialists, meaning they don't believe there's an actual millennial kingdom, or the postmillennialists who also don't believe that there's an actual 1,000-year kingdom on earth, Tend to believe that things uh, are getting better, especially the post-millennialists, and yet the pages of Scripture say things are going to get worse, much worse. Just going to briefly go over those three views again, so you've got got those definitions in your head. Millennialism talks about the one thousand year kingdom on earth, prophesied in the book of Revelation. Millennial meaning a thousand years. The question is, is it literal thousand years, or is it just a long period of time? If it's literal, then it hasn't happened yet because Jesus has been gone for over 2,000 years. So, if it's just a long period of time, then who knows how long it's going to last? We don't really know when Jesus will come back then. But the, the amillennial view is that, again, Jesus is reigning in heaven and the kingdom is here and we're the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. The premillennial view is pre-before. Jesus is going to come back before the thousand years starts and then he's going to reign on earth literally for a thousand years which also means that Israel as a nation will have a prominent role in that kingdom. In fact, it will be centered in Jerusalem, and there will be a temple. Except Jesus will be the high priest. Jesus will be the sacrifice. Jesus will be the king. He'll play all those roles, which all through history and God's history had been played by separate men. God has always separated those offices. Jesus will bring all those offices together under one person. What's the dominant view? Does that matter to you, or are you the guy who likes to to always take the underdog view? I think it's important to know what the dominant view has been through the ages. Even the amillennialists say that reading the Old Testament at face value and using the normal rules of interpretation for prophetic passages, that the Old Testament is definitely premillennial, that there's definitely a future kingdom for Israel, Gentiles will be grafted into the kingdom, and Messiah will reign for a thousand years. Nobody disputes that the Old Testament teaches that. In the three, uh, around in the 200s, uh, a guy by the name of Origen, O R I G E N, popularized the allegorical view of interpreting scripture. That there's the plain meaning that all you and I see, and then beneath the plain and normal meaning is a spiritualized hidden meaning, and that the Holy Spirit will illuminate your eyes to that hidden meaning. We would reject that. Although, if we're honest, we all allegorize at times in our fallenness. We want the Scripture to say something maybe that it doesn't actually say. Maybe in our pride at a Bible study, we want to point out something nobody else has seen. You know, are you that guy or that gal? No? Okay. You know, oh, wow, I never saw that. And you search all the commentaries and all the theologians all through history have never seen it either maybe it's not there. Maybe in your flesh the Bible's very clear about some th- sin you're struggling with, but you don't want to see it, so you allegorize the verse to make it say something slightly different than what it really does. The thing is, you don't really have to dress up the Bible that way to make it interesting and fascinating. It's the most fascinating book you'll ever read. It cuts right to the heart of mankind like no other book. You don't need the, the allegorizing. Just cut it straight. And Pastor Andy's been cutting it straight for 22 years, and, and it's been enthralling. I have friends and family members who can't imagine sitting through 45 minute to an hour sermon. And I'm like, often when he's done, I'm like, oh, can you keep going? This is fascinating. God is fascinating. God's plan is fascinating. I'm captivated. It's a page-turner. I can't put it down. I want to know more. I want to know more about this Jesus. The plain and simple truth is so hard to wrap your mind around that you don't need to make stuff up. Usually when we make stuff up, it's to make it come down to our level. What about... The apostles, were they premillennial or amillennial? Well, they were Jews. What do you think? You think they thought that Israel had forfeited all of the promises God had made to them and that a church would come along and assume Israel's place? No, they kept asking Jesus, so is it now when you're going to establish the kingdom? Now are you going to set up the kingdom? Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane is lopping ears off. He's ready to fight. We're going to set up the kingdom. No, we're not setting up the kingdom at this time. John, who wrote Revelation, was certainly premillennialist. He, he wrote about the thousand years. And he trained two of his students to be premillennialists. In fact, it was the only view in the church until Origen came along and allegorized the Bible. And then along comes St. Augustine. Augustine. Augustinian theology is so dominant in, in the church, both the Catholic church and the Protestant church. He's an amazing man. You should read his works. And yet, I think he got this one wrong. You know, how bold of me to say Augustine got something wrong. Who am I to say that? Well, I'm not the first person to say it. I think the Bible clearly shows that Augustine was wrong, but you almost can't blame him. At the time that he came up with that theory, Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which at its height stretched all the way from Northern Ireland way down into Africa and far across into Arabia. I mean, pretty much the... Most of the known world, I think as much as 75% of the people on the planet fell under the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was so dominant. um, You've heard of the Pax Romana, peace, Roman peace. As a Roman citizen, you could go anywhere in the Roman Empire, and if anyone laid a finger on you, the full fury of the Roman Empire would come down on your head. I mean, talk about a get-out-of-jail-free card everywhere You went. It's like the ultimate backstage pass. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen, and so the Jews could not were not supposed to stone him to death. He was he was a Roman citizen, and he played that card to get himself out of trouble a few times. Ultimately, he was beheaded because Roman citizens were beheaded when they were executed. Crucifixion was for non non citizens. It was a horrible way to die and, and humiliating. And so Augustine says, this must be the kingdom. This is it. The church and the state had really blended together. This is the kingdom. The Roman Catholic Church is the kingdom. Jesus is reigning spiritually from on high, but the Roman Catholic Church is the kingdom. And that has replaced Israel, which is why you see in Roman Catholicism, all the trappings of Israelite religion, right? There's an altar and priests and there's a holy of holies and, and uh, the body and blood of Jesus is actually there. It's an actual sacrifice over and over and over again every time the mass is said. So that's where all of that comes from. When the Reformation hits you would think that the Reformers would have said something about that. But sadly, as I was researching this, there has been a hatred for the Jewish people that has run very deep through the church for thousands of years, for 2,000 years now. Um, Augustine said they were like Cain, that they deserved to wander the earth aimlessly with no hope as a testimony to God's wrath on apostate or unbelievers. Remember Cain had a mark on his head so nobody would kill him and and it was a mercy of God but it was also a judgment that he would wander the earth and people would go, oh, there goes Cain who killed his brother. And so Augustine had said that the... Jewish people were like Cain. They're doomed to wander the earth with no home. They've forfeited all the promises of God, and the church is now Israel. And you go all the way through the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, all the way up to the Reformation, and the Reformers were saying the same thing. Calvin and Luther, Luther I told you two weeks ago, said horrible things about it. The Jews. He wanted to remove the book of James from the New Testament canon because he said it was too Jewish. Calvin had some interesting things to say about the Jews that I'd rather not repeat here. And yet, we look at these great men for what they did, and they brought the Scriptures back to the forefront and bought, brought salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, back to the forefront. And we applaud them for that. In the 1200s, a church council decreed that all millennialism will be the only view in the church. And premillennialists were actually arrested and persecuted, we were not allowed to teach that there was any real kingdom for the Jewish people in the future. They had forfeited all their their promises. In fact, they made Jewish people wear special clothing so people would know who was Jewish, and a cone-shaped hat. And they would sew these actually these yellow circles to represent the coins Judas used to portray Jesus. And to this day. Dirty money is kind of associated with the Jewish people, is it it not? It's a terrible stereotype uh, that they get their money dishonestly somehow. Where that tradition comes from is that everywhere the Jews went, nobody would let them set up a business in town. The only business they could set up was outside of town, and that was money lending. Remember the Shakespeare play about Shylock, the money lender? Pound of flesh, right? More of uh, the my research just got worse and worse, and really, the whole thing came to fruition under Nazi Germany's reign. And you wonder how those Protestant Christians in Germany could have allowed the Holocaust to happen. They pitied the Jews, but there was this sense that this is what happens when you turn your back on the true God. And so they either ignored the whole thing and in some cases uh, um, cheered the whole process on if we could just be done with these people. Everywhere the Jews have gone, they've actually thrived and been successful under against all odds. They're real resilient people, very intelligent, very smart, Israel today, more innovation comes from that country than anywhere else on the planet. Like I said two weeks ago, when there's a billion people surrounding you who want you dead, you get real innovative real fast, or you don't survive. We live in a country now where we've had relative peace for a long time, and we've kind of gotten uh, large and happy off of our freedom and our wealth. And you don't see a lot of innovation coming from our country anymore, sadly. And it's happening rather rapidly. We just honored our graduates, but it's common knowledge amongst the universities that our students are no longer ambitious. You know, I'm giving you a C on that paper. Okay. It's passing. Just here to kind of pass the time. What are you going to do when you get out? I don't know. I don't know. No real plans. Remember when we said we were going to put a man on the moon and that was just audacious? Our president said it's going to happen and it's going to happen on this date. Now, he's not prophetic, but we just don't have an ambitious nation anymore. That's getting totally off the track, but it's what happens when you give somebody an open mic, right? What about Jesus then? Was he all-mill or post-mill or pre-mill? And does it matter? That's where we left off two weeks ago. In one sense, all of our brothers in Christ, whether all-mill, pre-mill, or post-mill, or... Thank you. Thank um, you. As long as they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and they believe in the Trinity and believe that He died for the sins of the world and was raised again on the third day, and only through faith in Jesus is salvation possible, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. We're not going to break fellowship with people who are of a different eschatology. But it does matter in the sense that we want to get Scripture right. And if Scripture clearly teaches something, then we need to stick with the Scripture. If God says he's made promises to Israel, and those, those promises are going to be fulfilled, then we need to take that seriously and not replace Israel with the church. For many reasons. First of all, if Israel forfeited their inheritance because of their apostasy, what about the church? Has the church been pure all through the ages? What if we get replaced by somebody else? And let's take it to the individual level. If Israel can forfeit their inheritance through their apostasy, what about you and I? Are we saved one day and then not the next because we messed up and then we get saved again? And how does that work? Isn't our salvation secure if we're the elect? Doesn't the Bible clearly teach that those who God elects and foreordains will come to faith in Christ and they will be saved all the way to the end? This church teaches eternal security. If you are in the elect, if you are saved, you will be saved to the end. You can't forfeit your salvation through your disobedience. Your disobedience might be a sign that you're not actually saved. But those who God is going to save, he's going to save. He said he'll lose not one. Nobody can pluck you from the Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know all the verses. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. Not even your faith is of yourself, so that no one may boast. Was Israel chosen because there was something special about them, that they deserved to be a chosen nation? Absolutely not. In fact, it says over and over again in Deuteronomy, I did not choose you because of anything you did. One theologian poet said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Why the Jews? I don't know, because he decided to call Abraham. He said, I'll build a nation through you. He made a covenant with him, and it was a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant, which is strange because there's two parties involved. But it was unilateral in that when God ratified the covenant with Abraham, Again, he stooped down to human level so we could understand him. He used a um, device that people were used to using when they signed a covenant. They took some animals and chopped them in half and separated the pieces. And the two parties of the covenant were supposed to walk through the pieces right through the river of blood. It was very messy. It hit all your senses. And it was designed... To really make you think twice about reneging your contract. If only we had something like that today. Because people seem to break their contract all the time. We've uh, lost integrity as a people. We need an army of lawyers now to make people keep their word. So God makes this covenant with Abraham. He makes all these promises to Abraham and to his people and a great nation. And then... He puts Abraham to sleep after the animals have been cut in two, and God passes through the pieces, but Abraham never passes through the pieces. He's asleep the whole time. Signifying that God knows man cannot keep his end of the bargain on his own. So God says this is a one-sided agreement. Now, is Israel punished in some way temporarily for their apostasy? Yeah, their whole history is... They're on top, they're on the bottom. They're on top, they're on the bottom. And just when the church thought it had replaced Israel and Israel would be gone forevermore, 1948, Israel comes back to the land and they're designated as a nation again. And it seems ever since 1948, they've been trying to yank that designation away from them again. I don't even know why they gave them nationhood back. They keep wanting to take it away from them. I know how they got their nationhood back, and you know how they got it back. It was God's will and His promise that there will always be a nation Israel and that they would, a remnant, not the whole nation, but a remnant someday would fulfill all those promises and see all those promises come to fruition. And if you're talking to a Jewish person today and you're mill, and you're trying to explain to them that this is the kingdom, through all the persecution and all the death and all the holocaust, terrorists walking into pizza parlors where you live in Jerusalem and blowing themselves up in the middle of a school party and all of that, that's the kingdom. Really, those are the promises of God we see in the Old Testament where there's no more crying or weeping where there's no more pain, where there's great prosperity and peace, they're not going to believe you. That doesn't sound anything like the kingdom that God promised to Israel. And so there's got to be a future kingdom. We're going to go next week into more proof that there is a future kingdom. And I'll help you understand the way prophecy works. But in the meantime, just remember this. Again, if Israel forfeited all of its promises through its disobedience, then what about us? What about us? Aren't you glad that it doesn't depend on our good works and how much faith we muster up? Jesus said, just faith as small as a mustard seed. That's all it takes. Faith as small as a mustard seed. People ask me, Where I'm going to go when I die, I can say with confidence, because the Scriptures give me confidence. My Savior died for me. He chose me. He died for me. He lives for me. And I can't thwart His plan. I have great faith of where I'll be when I die, and I have a great message I can preach to you and anyone else that I meet. It doesn't depend on you and your good works. Just put your faith in Jesus. Amen? And if this is a God that took that away from another group of people, how are we going to have any confidence that we're going to be able to keep and hold on to those promises? So please read uh, Mark 13 kind of throughout the week. Read it three or four times and get familiar with the passage, and we'll finish up next week. Let me pray for you and dismiss you. God, indeed, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, our high priest and our sacrifice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Forgive us God for trying to take Israel's inheritance for ourselves. You have special blessings for them and for all your people who are called according to your purpose. You own the cattle in a thousand hills. There's plenty to go around. Lord, we do pray for Israel and for its safety. Though filled with unbelievers, Lord, there's a remnant who believe that Jesus is Messiah. We pray for that remnant. We pray for you to return soon, Lord Jesus. We pray we'll be found diligent to tell people this good news to preach it, listen to it, hear it, obey it, and live it. To the glory of your name, amen.